Welcome to episode 41 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we discussed the role that the mass movements among workers and peasants played in the first phase of the National Revolutionary Army's Northern Expedition, which was the push beginning in May 1926 from Guangdong through Hunan and into Hubei culminating in the capture of Wuhan and Hubei province in September and October of 1926, with the portion of the city on the west bank of the Yangtze River falling a month before the portion on the east bank of the river was captured. As we saw, there was tremendous spontaneous mass support for the northern expedition and some support by organized workers and peasant associations although there had not been a lot of time to get the workers and peasants organized. What we see after the northern expedition passed through these areas is a tremendous upsurge in the creation of unions among the workers and peasants. In Wuhan, unions had been outlawed and forced underground back in 1923 after the February 7th incident, which we discussed back in episode 19, To refresh your memory, that was when the railway workers' strike was crushed with a big massacre by the warlord Wu Peifu and his allies' troops, and had the effect of demonstrating to the Communist Party how its hopes of concentrating just on organizing workers was not going to work because they did not have the strength to fight back against the repression of the warlord forces. As a result... Many communists were convinced of the correctness of the Comintern's directives to form a united front with the Guomindang, which has been the overall strategic context for the Communist Party's work that we've been discussing for the past 22 episodes or so. So now, three and a half years later, with Wuhan liberated from the warlords and with Hubei province being a center of heavy industry, there was a massive surge in unionization. By November 1926, so just after one or two months from Wu Peifu being run out of town, depending on which side of the Yangtze River you were on, 93,000 workers were in unions, almost all of which had been formed since September. And by the the end of the year, 200,000 workers had been organized. And the speed with which the unions were organized reflected the readiness of the communists to jump into action right when the city was liberated which had the effect of all these unions being essentially dominated by the left. And so you didn't have a situation in Wuhan like you had in Shanghai and Guangzhou, where there were right-wing unions competing with the left-wing ones. One of the immediate results of the rapid unionization, combined with the dominance of the unions and the left in the city, was a general rise in wages, despite the way in which the warfare had uh, disrupted local industry, which had led to a rise in unemployment, which normally would have led to a depression in wages, not a rise. The unions also tended to take strong positions against foreign domination of China. Already on October 6th, labor demonstrators tried to enter the British concessionary of Wuhan, but were repulsed by British troops. But early in 1927, they did succeed and the British effectively lost control of the concession, although the legal niceties weren't completed for another couple years. In the countryside, the organization of peasant associations was even more dramatic. According to one source, in Hubei, 
There were 287,000 peasants organized in associations by the end of 1926, whereas there had only been 7,200 organized peasants in July. In Hunan, the growth of the peasant movement was even more tremendous. With 1,200,000 peasants organized by December 1st, compared to 37,000 six months earlier. By July 1927, over 4,500,000 peasants in Hunan had been organized into associations. Now, these numbers should be taken more as rough estimates than as precise numbers, but even so, they give a good qualitative sense of the scale of the increase in organized peasant activity that was quickly taking place in areas that had been cleared of warlord rule by the northern expedition. The historian Yokoyama Suguru gives a good, concise account of the -the on-the-ground activities of the peasant associations in Hunan at this time in her article, The Peasant Movement in Hunan, which I've linked to in the show notes. And for the next few paragraphs, I'm drawing very closely on her work, including combining some quoting and paraphrasing. I just note this because it's hard to give a proper citation in a podcast like this, but when I draw on someone else's work to this extent, I want to give some credit beyond just listing their work in the show notes. The actual demands of the peasant associations varied according to the needs of the different villages. According to a report from Changsha, Hunan's capital, dated November 30th, 1926, The peasants in one county mounted a rent reduction drive under the slogan, Back to Pre-1916 Rents. About 70,000 peasants, organized and unorganized, participated in the movement. The movement succeeded in reducing rents to less than 50% of the harvest. But this particular campaign did not spread widely because the period of rent collection had already passed at that time in other areas. The rent problem was therefore expected to be solved the following year. The demand for a reduction of interest on loans predominated in some counties. For example, in one county, the interest rates on loans were reduced from the earlier rate of 7 to 8% per month to 4 to 5%. It was reported that the peasants were satisfied with this achievement. In another county, the peasants won a reduction of the rent deposit. Tax reduction struggles occurred in other areas. Nearly all the peasant associations demanded a reduction in the price of rice and restrictions on rice exports. Because the serious natural calamities of this year, drought or flooding, depending on where you were, resulted in a poor harvest, the most important concern of the poor peasants was to ensure an adequate local supply of rice at prices they could afford. The peasants used various approaches— They asked the villagers' assembly or peasant association to regulate the official price of rice. They proposed to block the exportation of rice to other areas, generally or partly. This was a struggle against the big landlords who had charged excessive rents on the one hand, and on the other hand, it was a struggle to protect the interests of workers, handicraftsmen, and small merchants, as well as poor peasants in the rural districts. In regard to political activities, the peasants gained participation in rural government in ways they hadn't had before. In some villages, political power was taken over by the peasant association. 
and in a few others, rural governments were formed by the United Organization of the Peasants Association, the Teachers Association, the Merchants Association, and the Workers' Union. In many districts, the local Guomindong held political power and gave support to the peasant movement, and villagers' assemblies were organized at the highest, as the highest legislative organ. In a few places, the chairman of the self-defense headquarters or the village committee members were elected by the villagers. Supporting the peasant movement had become a major plank in the official Guomindong program. There was a major Guomindong conference in Guangzhou in the second half of October, and one of the major themes that emerged at it was official support for the peasant movement. Mao Zedong, in particular, played a major role in pushing forward a pro-peasant agenda at this conference, which was dominated by the left wing of the Guomindong. With Chiang Kai-shek out on campaign with a northern expedition, this conference was another example of official Guomindong policy being set well to the left of the actual politics of most Guomindong members. But the inevitable backlash was yet to come. For the time being, the party policy was very encouraging of mass peasant upheaval. The program adopted at the conference contained 20 articles advancing the interests of peasants. Article 1 called for a 25% reduction in land rent. Article 17 provided for a village council to carry out village self-government. Article 18 authorized the formation of peasant associations, while Article 20 authorized them to organize local self-defense units. The program also called for labor laws to ensure freedom of organization and the right to strike, and provided for a maximum work week of 54 hours. So, essentially, what we saw being promoted by the Guomindong in Hunan and elsewhere was a combination of the model of peasant organizing, which we examined in recent podcast episodes, which combined the Haifeng model of fighting for reforms such as rent reduction, combined with making sure that the peasants had a capacity for armed self-defense against the inevitable backlash from the local gentry. After all, the warlord troops may have been pushed out of Hunan, but the local local gentry and landlords were, by definition, rooted in the location and still had their power base in the land and wealth they owned and the militias that they controlled. But now, in addition to promoting the formation of armed self-defense corps for the peasant associations, the Guomindong government also formally took the position of taking the side of the peasants much more aggressively than it had previously. The October conference passed a specific resolution which called for taking the side of the peasant associations against landlord militias. And of course, now the peasant associations themselves were taking a hand in controlling local institutions of political power. It was after this conference that Mao took up a new position as secretary of the Communist Party's Commission on the Peasant Movement. This position had been created a year earlier as a nod to the need for the party to pay more attention to the peasant movement, but had remained vacant until Mao now took up the position. This meant that he left Guangzhou for Shanghai at the beginning of November. Now, if you read some of the early biographies of Mao, 
which rely on Mao's autobiographical testimony from Red Star over China, you would think that Mao had gone to Shanghai a few months earlier. Red Star over China was written in the 1930s by an American journalist, Edgar Snow, and interviews that Snow conducted with Mao form the basis of a large part of the book. For whatever reason, in that book, Mao says that after Chiang Kai-shek's March 1926 coup, that he went to Shanghai to take up running the peasant department of the Communist Party. It's not clear to me why Mao would get this wrong and whether this error was is deliberate or not, uh, in which case, of course, it would be a lie, not an error. And perhaps there was some miscommunication with Snow. Although that's doubtful because Snow's manuscript was vetted multiple times before Snow left the communist base area of Yan'an where he conducted the interviews. But the historical record is pretty clear about Mao being based in Guangzhou with the Peasant Training Institute, then participating in the October Guomindang Conference, and only then moving on to Shanghai and taking up the Communist Party's Peasant Movement Commission. I just bring this up in case there are listeners who are reading any of the Mao biographies that are more than 30 or 40 years old and might be wondering at discrepancies between what's in this podcast and what you're reading. But as you can imagine, with all that was going on with the peasant movement in Hunan, how could the leader of the Communist Party Peasant Commission stay a long time in China's biggest city, working underground, reading reports and writing directives, when he could instead be out among one of the biggest mass movements of the 20th century? By December, Mao was in Hunan, his home province after all, and engaged in the fieldwork for one of his most famous works, his Report on the Peasant Movement in Hunan. In late December, Mao attended the first Peasant Congress of Hunan, which was an unprecedented event in Changsha when 170 delegates representing well over a million organized peasants met to coordinate policy for the movement. While land reform was still not part of either the Communist or Guomindang program, the Congress did pass a resolution on the problem of confiscation of the reactionaries' property. The actual confiscation of property was now on the agenda. Even though it was conceived of as a way to attack the power of the reactionaries and not as part of a thoroughgoing transformation of the agricultural basis of the national economy. Here's how the landmark resolution read. In the past, all the warlords and survivors of feudalism, corrupt officials, local tyrants, and oppressive gentry, had enriched themselves by exploiting the people and embezzling public funds. Regardless of the fact that revolutionary power is extensive in Hunan at present, such enemies of the people still plan to recover their authority by using their abundant property and great economic power. When we try to overthrow the reactionary forces, we must first confiscate their property, destroy their economic foundation, and make them lose everything on which they depend. Because their property has been accumulated by exploitation and embezzlement, it is only natural to make them return it to the people. So we insist on confiscation of the reactionaries' property. 1. Ask the Committee for Investigation of Reactionaries' Property to confiscate all the property of the warlords and their subordinates, corrupt officials, local tyrants, and exploitive gentry. 2. In each district, the Peasant Association is to take charge of investigation of the reactionaries' property and to report to the committee. 3. 
The confiscated reactionary's property is to be used as a relief fund for old people, babies, and wounded soldiers, as well as for famine. End quote. So, this move to confiscate land as a way of attacking the gentry who opposed the peasant movement was a new escalation of the fight. And of course, as we have seen in some recent episodes, the landlords did not accede to the organization of the peasantry without a fight. But now the peasants had legal backing to fight back against the landlords and their forces, and the struggle spread ferociously. In one major incident in Guangdong province, three days of fighting between a peasant corps and a landlord militia resulted in 150 people being killed and 5,000 made homeless. The landlords and their families who lost the battle. And to cross Hunan, violence broke out as the peasants moved to assert their new rights. As the fighting between landlord militias and peasant associations escalated, the Hunan provincial government set up a special court for trying local tyrants and evil gentry on January 1st, 1921. That is the official name, the special court for trying local tyrants and evil gentry. And at the same time, formed the county special court. The judging committee of the county-level special court consisted of representatives of the peasant association, trade unions, the Guomindong, and the county magistrate. The judging committee of the province-level special court for trying local tyrants and evil gentry was composed of two persons from the provincial government committee two people from the provincial Guomindong, and one person elected from among the provincial peasant association, trade union, student association, school staff association, and merchant association. Thereafter, on January 19th, the provincial regulations for punishment of the local tyrants and evil gentry were proclaimed. The regulations were very strict. For instance, Quote, those who resisted or checked the revolution or propagandized anti-revolution, end quote, were, be, were to be sentenced to death, penal servitude for life, or deprivation of civil rights for life. Suppression of the old ruling class spread all over the province from the middle of January 1927. According to one report, a total of 133 local tyrants, gentry, and other reactionaries were sentenced to death. In addition to legal punishment, illegal punishment was also meted out by peasant masses in many places. So, by early 1927, there was a tremendous revolutionary upsurge going on in Hunan and in the countryside of some neighboring provinces, all with the support of the revolutionary government, which had been set up in the wake of the victory of the Northern Expedition. After spending 32 days in the countryside of Hunan, Mao arrived in Wuhan in February 1927, full of enthusiasm for the peasant movement, convinced that he had been correct in seeing that China's revolution lay principally in the hands of the peasants. Perhaps the best way to wrap up this episode's discussion of the surging revolutionary peasant movement in Hunan would be to take a few minutes and read Mao's Report to the Central Committee on Observations Regarding the Peasant Movement in Hunan which dates from February 16, 1927. Having arrived from Changsha in Wuchang on February 11th, I hereby report as follows on various matters. 1. On December 17th, I arrived in Changsha from Hankou to participate in the Provincial Congress of Peasants' Representatives. 
At the Committee for Drafting Resolutions of the Congress, we discussed various resolutions. All the resolutions adopted on this occasion may be considered fairly realistic. The Congress closed on December 30th. In accordance with the decision X of the District Committee, all comrades who were representatives to the Congress held a brief training session at which I presented three reports on the peasant question and on methods of investigation. Two, starting on January 4th, I went to the countryside to carry out an investigation which lasted until February 5th. Altogether, the investigation continued for 32 days and covered the five Xi'an of Shangtan, Shangshang, Hongshan, Liling, and Changsha. In the countryside and in the Xi'an seats, Xi'an being about like a county in English, experienced peasants were invited to meet with peasant movement comrades in an investigation meeting. The materials obtained are not inconsiderable. What we saw and heard in the rural areas of these Xi'an is almost totally different from what we have seen and heard in Hanko and Changsha. I shall first set forth several large errors in our previous policy for dealing with the peasant movement. After the investigation of the three Xi'an of Shangtan, Shangshang, and Hengshan, I returned to the district committee and gave a detailed report to the responsible comrades. I also presented reports both at the party school and at the youth league school. Following the investigations in the two Xi'an of Liling and Changsha, I gave several reports to the district committee. The former errors of the party and the peasant movement have already been corrected in part. The important points are as follows. One, the fact that the peasant movement is fine, has ser- that being in quotes, um, has served to correct the unanimous view on the part of the government, the Guomidong, and all sectors of society that, quote, the peasant movement is terrible, end quote. Two, the fact that, quote, the peasants are the vanguard of the revolution, end quote, has been used to correct the opinion universally held in all circles about a, quote, movement of riffraff, end quote, a, quote, movement of lazy peasants, end quote. Three, the fact that no kind of united front existed at all in the past was used to correct the argument that peasant associations are wrecking the united front. The problem from now on is not to accuse anyone of wrecking the united front, but jointly to shoulder responsibility for setting up a united front. Four, the peasant movement falls into three periods. First, the period of organization. Second, the period of revolution. And third, the period of proposing a united front. Every place, no matter where, must go through the second period before it can make the transition to the third period. It is absolutely impossible to leap from the first period to the third period without going through the second period of violently overthrowing the power and prestige of the feudal landlords. Five, most of the Xi'an of central and southern Hunan have experienced a stormy period of rural revolution, the second period. The countryside has fallen into a state of anarchy, and a system of democratic rural self-rule must immediately be created to change anarchy into a situation with a government that has taken concrete measures to establish a rural united front in order to avoid the danger of the peasant villages becoming isolated. 
Only then will such problems as weapons, public food supplies, education, construction, and XX, uh, this being essentially illegible parts of the manuscript, be settled in the, ma- in the countryside. Presently, no political problem in Hunan is more pressing than this point of carrying village self-rule through to completion. There can be no question of provincial people's assemblies or Xi'an people's assemblies until after village self-rule has been completed. 6. During the second period, the period of the revolutionary uprising in the countryside, all actions of the peasants against the feudal landlord class are correct. Even if there are some excesses, they are still correct, because unless they learn to go too far, XX, they will certainly not be able to overthrow the power of the feudal class built up over several thousand years and will certainly not be able to complete the democratic revolution quickly. To right a wrong, it is necessary to exceed the proper limits. The wrong cannot be righted without doing so. It is for this reason that the peasant associations must not under any circumstances ask the government or the militia to arrest so-called riffraff. They can only raise the slogan of peasant associations rectify discipline and go themselves to rectify those few undesirable elements in lower level peasant associations. Otherwise, it is impossible to avoid undermining the resolve of the peasants and increasing the prestige of the landlords. 7. The problem of hoarding grain is a problem for all levels of society. Actually, most of the poor peasants want to hoard grain, and only a small minority of the rich peasants want it to be released. The peasant association can only play a role of persuasion, of persuading the poor peasants to make concessions to the rich peasants. It cannot represent the rich peasants and go out and attack the poor peasants. If hoarding is so severe, this is entirely because of anarchy in the countryside, which makes it impossible to guarantee public food supplies. This is the responsibility of government. It is not wholly the responsibility of the peasant associations. If we want grain to circulate, the only way is quickly to set up new organs of village self-rule that will take responsibility for guaranteeing the public food supply. 8. The various conflicts in the countryside, such as the conflicts between peasants and workers, between peasants and merchants, between peasants and students, between peasants and the party, between poor and rich peasants, between the peasants and the government, must all be resolved under the banner of the Guomindong. We must absolutely not raise immediately the banner of the Communist Party to resolve them. Thus, among the peasants, we must develop the Guomindong everywhere, letting it take the lead in mediating and directing these matters that are very difficult to mediate and direct. In the past, there has been too great a gap between the degree of the Guomindong's development and the degree of development of the peasant movement. We must develop the organization of the Guomindong in a big way among the peasantry, especially among the poor peasants. 9. The peasant problem is solely a problem of the poor peasants, but there are two poor peasant problems, the problem of capital and the problem of the land. Both these problems are no longer problems of propaganda, but are problems requiring immediate action. 10. In many of the Xi'an of Hunan, the peasants have already completed the democratic revolution in the countryside. The revolutionary feelings of the poor peasants are accordingly very high, and given the present circumstances, they are absolutely resolved to proceed rapidly to yet another revolution. 
This being true, the broad masses of poor peasants and their tens of millions, according to the investigation in Changsha, 70% are poor peasants, 20% are middle peasants, and 10% are rich peasants, want to go forward to another revolution. My investigation indicates that no force can resist them for long. Today, the masses are going to the left, and in many places, our party, not to mention the Guomindang, shows that it has not reached the same level of revolutionary feeling as the masses. This is something that very much demands our attention. 11. For this reason, it should be said that in order, A, to deal with the current situation, and B, to prepare for the revolution which is soon to come, our party must be greatly developed. For the small Hunan party to be effective, it must expand to 20,000 members within six months. It now has only 6,000 and must establish a local organization in every Xi'an where the peasant associations have more than 20,000 members. The Hong Society, 12, the Hong Society is a force to be reckoned with. We must win over such forces and never adopt the, met, the method of attacking them. The, the Hong Society is a, a secret society in the countryside there. 13. The situation is extremely favorable for women and children to rise up in the countryside. The women in particular are a great force and must not be neglected. Above, I have outlined the essential features of the 13 items listed. Beginning tomorrow, within three or four days, I shall write a detailed report on the situation and send it to you for your inspection, corrections, and further guidance. So, okay, that was a little long. But I think the content is very rich and hopefully gives a bit more of a vivid sense both of what was going on in the countryside and how Mao was thinking about how to bring revolutionary organization to bear on the massive upsurge among the peasantry. There are a bunch of things that jump out at me from this document. Definitely his comments on working as the Guomindang and not as the Communist Party, I think really demonstrates the way in which the communists were using the Guomindang for their peasant organizing work, which is, of course, one of the major points of contention in the ongoing conflict about communist participation in the Guomindang. Um, another thing is the relatively small numbers of organized revolutionaries who could be brought to bear to influence a movement in which more than a million peasants were participating, and the sense of chaos overall in the countryside that accompanied the revolutionary upsurge. Anyways, this isn't a report that you can find in the widely available selected works of Mao that you can find on the internet, so I think it was worthwhile to read the whole thing out. Of course, the detailed report that Mao promised to write up at the end of this document turned out to be his famous Report on the Peasant Movement in Hunan, which is very easy to find on the internet, and I recommend that you read it if you really want to flesh out this discussion of the peasant movement in Hunan. The version you'll find online is the version that was published in the selected works, and while that isn't exactly the same as what Mao wrote at the time, and which ended up being serialized in four issues of the Hunan District Committee of the Communist Party's weekly newspaper, it's not that different. As you can imagine, Chiang Kai-shek and the Guomindang write are not thrilled about any of this, and so the situation is going to get much more complicated and bloody very soon now. And as we end, I do want to let you know that ratings and reviews can help other people to find this podcast. So please consider leaving a rating or review if you learned something or enjoyed this episode.